Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. I want to talk a little bit about the collapse of FTX and what it says about the financial system structurally and any conclusions we might draw. The first thing, and I think really the salient thing and the important thing, is it's not that much of a surprise. I mean, nobody is really, really shocked. Nobody is sort of saying extraordinary changes have to be made or this is a really extraordinary event. And that in and of itself, I think, is really a statement. And we should ask, you know, okay, a company that was just recently valued at $32 billion, buying with some of the leading venture capital firms in the country, goes bankrupt essentially overnight. And while all the facts aren't in, almost certainly had a significant element of pretty simple straightforward fraud. $32 billion company, bankrupt overnight, leading financial institutions involved, not a total surprise. But I would suggest that there's some sort of good reason why we're not surprised. First, and if not foremost, but I think the starting point is to consider um, the nature and structure of venture capital as it exists today in our financial system. Virtually all the venture capital firms have serial limited partnerships, all of which have a defined life. Usually 10 years may be extendable, but given their structure, every venture-backed firm has to be sold, period. The purpose of and the incentives, the skill set, you know, the whole sort of point is not to build a company and own it forever, which, you know, in fact is doable and works and is a source of uh, some of the greatest wealth in the country or in the world, but to make the company more saleable. So every step of the way is driven in order to enhance a future sale. Now, operating at the company well, building a business, et cetera, is not absolutely antithetical to that and not necessarily inconsistent with that, but it is not, you know, sort of the driver. So let's consider a few things which I would say are absolutely standard operating procedure. The first, every venture presentation has to have sort of an exit strategy, a target, as it were. Every single one of them contains projections and virtually without exception, you know, certainly 90 plus percent of the time, the projections are too high. And if, in fact, one asked the people handing you the projections, as it were, you know, I'd like to bet $10,000 and I will take the under on this projection, that projection, etc. They would never do it. In fact, it's not just that the projections are too high. They're not believed. Uh, they are actually dishonest in a, a manipulation, you know, sort of frequently. The idea would be we have this number. You know, suppose we're too optimistic. Suppose, suppose it's only half of that. It still works. 
Now, in operating a business, you know, one tries to make one's forecast projections as accurate as possible. But again, we're not operating a business, we're making a sale. Hype, in the case of, of selling, is not a bug. It's much more of a feature. Another standard operating procedure within the venture world, the company will very, very frequently have a board of advisors of prominent, recognized people in the field of technology the company is, pretty much all of whom will have been paid with stock and all of whom do essentially nothing for the company. But again, the point is to lend their name to help build credibility in order to continue what is a sales process. Now, the centrality of selling is, I would say, strange, but at the very least deserves some comment and analysis. First point, in every situation, the seller knows more about the thing that's being sold than the buyer. And yet, the fundamentals of the transaction are the suggestion that the product is worth more to the buyer than it is to the seller. And while I wouldn't say that this can never be true or that there isn't possible synergies, etc., it's at the very least, you know, not automatically true and in fact ought to be viewed with some skepticism. Furthermore, good businesses are somewhat rare if in fact you own one. The standard thought would be that this is a good thing to have. Why sell? Now, in the case of FTX, almost certainly there was vanilla fraud involved and fraud is different than hype, which is different than optimism. However, the three of them do not have, you know, clear sorts of boundaries, and it's more of a leap from optimism to fraud uh, than it is from hype to fraud. In particular, when you start, you know, with projections that nobody believes, a group of promoters, which is to say the board of advisors, who aren't actually developing the technology or working intimately and consistently for the advancement of the venture, but selling their name, as it were. The movement to what may well be considered fraud is not such a uh, far step. I would add that all along the process in the normal way of things, none of the participants think they're doing anything wrong. I mean, one, a transaction that over which I feel a good deal of jealousy, Mark Cuban made his fortune founding a company called Broadcast.com. And um, I think Mark Cuban is a smart guy. I think he's probably a pretty good investor. But Broadcast.com, when it was sold, 
had $25 million worth of revenue. Yahoo paid a billion dollars or a little bit more for the company. And if my memory and information is correct, shut it down or closed it off somewhat shortly thereafter. So $25 million worth of revenue, a billion dollar sales price, quite remarkable and certainly something that one might be moved to try and imitate if one is a sort of young entrepreneur, certainly quicker than building a company over 20 or 30 years of above average compound growth. Now, did Mark Cuban defraud Yahoo? In the legal sense, almost certainly not. Did the bankers and advisors commit fraud in the process? Uh, In the legal sense, almost certainly not. But did the advisors or Cuban in the process say things that they didn't believe to be true or um, that they knew were highly speculative and presented as being quite a bit less so. I don't know, but quite likely. Did Yahoo defraud its shareholders at the time? Uh, It was a very highly valued public company. You know, again, almost certainly not, but in maintaining or trying to maintain an extraordinary valuation did the management of Yahoo in various forum and various situations say things that they did not believe to be true or that they knew to be highly speculative but were presented as somewhat less so almost certainly and I think this is you know a feature of a system in which the principal motivation, the principal activity is the selling of securities or the selling of a company and not the building of a long-term business. Now, when I started White Box, as listeners to this podcast or readers of my letters may well know, uh, I had a mantra of 20 for 20, 20% returns for 20 years. And I wanted that to be the lodestar for everybody who worked there. That was the thing that would make the business successful. And it wouldn't be great salesmanship. It wouldn't be great marketing. It was, you know, simply that compound interest has tremendous power. And if one can, in fact, compound at 20% for 20 years, one will have a meaningful, significant successful business. And it's almost, in fact, the definition of a successful business is one that can compound at an above average rate for an extended period of time, a very extended period of time, more, in fact, than the three or four years that would be the hoped for holding period of any venture portfolio company. And while more businesses fail, then succeed to compound at a good rate for a long period of time is not a wild-eyed pipe dream. You know, so 
White Box, you know, actually, you know, did it for 10 plus years post-financial crisis, the 20, in the strategies and form that White Box had was not going to be doable. And, you know, that's okay. When I acquired a bank in 2015, again, I thought we could compound book value and earnings at a 20% rate for a very extended period, if not if not 20 years, seven years in, so far, so good. What is striking to me, over the course of my career, I've probably seen a thousand pitches. I've met with hundreds of people looking to raise money. And in those thousand presentation in those hundreds of of meetings i don't believe i've ever heard 20 for 20. no i don't believe i've ever heard our objective is to compound at a very nice rate for a very long period of time i think the reason i've never heard this pitch even though it is the formula and the story of more or less every large private company is the dominance within the financial system and the broader culture in which the financial system sits for selling, for the sale, for marketing, for actually not building a business to own for a very, very long time, if not forever. One of the things that is, I think, ironic in the failure of FTX is post uh, the great financial crisis, post 2008, trust, faith in financial institutions was dramatically lessened. And again, you know, the financial system sits within a broader culture, so this is consistent with a loss of faith in institutions across the board. But there was specific loss of faith, loss in trustworthiness in financial institutions as they existed. And a big part of the marketing slash hype slash story slash narrative um, behind all of crypto was in fact trusted institutions could be eliminated and a technology could replace trusted intermediaries. I wonder whether the promoters of the narrative actually believed that to be the case even as they were sort of setting themselves up as intermediaries. As always, I invite questions, comments, or any feedback. Once again, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.